What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Nigel Eccles, the former co-founder and CEO of FanDuel. In this conversation, we discuss raising $450 million in venture capital, finding product market fit at FanDuel, Ethereum versus Solana, the future of DAOs, regulation in crypto, what he learned from 20 years of entrepreneurship, and more. Nigel is an incredible entrepreneur that has been building businesses for nearly two decades. He has a unique insight across multiple industries, including consumer products, sports betting, crypto, Web3, and more. I learned a lot during our conversation, and I hope that you do too. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart garments clothings called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go or on a run. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it, like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. But here's the best part. Whoop is now offering 15% off of their all new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the hype. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Nigel, thanks for joining me today. How are you? No, thank you. Thanks for having the show. Of course, of course. So I think you're probably most known as being the co-founder and CEO of FanDuel, obviously mm-hmm. a massive company, but you've also done a lot over the last 20 years and you're working on some super interesting projects now. We're going to mm-hmm. get into all that, but before we do, maybe it's helpful just to give the kind of 50 foot overview of who you are, where you came from, yeah. what you've done, all of that. Yeah. So I've been involved in consumer tech for about 20 years and 2000, to go way back, I was product manager at a company called Flutter.com, which was a, a betting exchange based in the UK. So we basically came up with one of the originators, this idea that anyone could bet with anyone online. And even at the time, betting online was was very novel. So that product launched in 2000. We, we actually merged with Betfair in 2001. And actually the parent company today is known as Flutter Entertainment, which ironically enough bought my own company, FanDuel, which you alluded to sort of over the last two years. 
After that, I launched another betting exchange called BetDAC and then laterally worked through 2007, worked on a prediction market for a couple of years. It's sort of very interesting seeing crypto prediction markets are becoming popular again. We worked in them for a couple of years, a very interesting sector. It's quite hard actually to make it work, but we've kind of learned a lot from that. We actually pivoted that company in 2009 into becoming FanDuel. And if you're a sports fan, you probably know what FanDuel is, but if not, FanDuel was a daily fantasy sports product. So it took that season long, collapsed it down into one day. That was how we started the company and grew it for five or six years, or actually the first seven or eight years, 2009. In 2018, what happened then was sports betting was legalized in the US. And with FanDuel, basically managed to leverage that and get into heavily into sports betting. Now FanDuel is the number one sports book in the US. It has got somewhere around 40 to 45% market share. And then the sportsbook side now really dominates over the daily fantasy sports part, but it really was that daily fantasy sports user base and brand that really kind of built the sports book. I left about three years ago to start a new company. That company is called Vault, which is a an NFT platform. And then over the last couple of years, I've started another two companies while still running Vault, one of which is Starstock, which is a sports car trading marketplace. And then last November, we started BetDex, which is a decentralized betting exchange, which we're building on Solana. Okay. That's a quick run through of, of different projects. Yeah. I, I just want to make sure everyone heard that there was three businesses you founded in what the last two years, basically, or three years. Yeah. Last sort of, well, Vault originally was called Flick. We started that three years ago. We pivoted last year into becoming Vault. So that really was started last year. Starstock was started two years ago in 2019. I guess it's two and a half years ago. And then BetDex was started just about three or four months ago. So this is actually pretty interesting. One of the things that I don't think most people know is that what you mentioned previously, which is that FanDuel pivoted. It was another mm-hmm. company previously, which was yeah, a predictive yeah, market. That's and, right. and this is common today, right? The predictive market yeah. and stuff. But you guys were doing, I think it was politics, right? Was it politics before? Yeah, mostly politics on HubDub. It was like 2008 election. That was kind of we had a huge run up that year. Yeah. So you were a little bit ahead of the time probably before mm-hmm. what people would see as commonplace now, but you've also yeah. started flicking and transitioned that into vault. So that's right. let's touch on the idea of like seeing something maybe not working to the degree that you thought it mm-hmm. might, seeing another avenue and then transitioning. I don't know if you yeah. had raised venture capital on both of these at the time that you did that, or maybe you hadn't, but maybe just talk through kind of like that process of figuring out something wasn't working and pivoting as quickly as you could. Yeah. So I'd say the first time we did it and we did it from HubDub and Fandil, It was a very painful process. Our investors were supportive, but to be honest, we were seed stage. Like they couldn't really say no because the entire team, like it was just the founding team. They weren't really experts in the sector we were in. And so they really kind of, when we said, no, we think it's a much better opportunity, they listened. But it was pretty gut-wrenching because we'd spent two years working on prediction markets. We were really bullish on them. We'd just gone out and raised a couple of million on it. And it was just really, really obvious from our numbers that wasn't working, that we needed to do something different. And for me, I handle uncertainty quite well. And so I was like, okay, this isn't working, but we have money in the bank. We've got a really good team. Let's see what we could do differently. But it wasn't an easy process to get. And actually what we did is we went to our investors and said, hey, we want to do this other product. Of course, we're going to keep going, the prediction market product going. We kind of preserved that fiction for about a year until it became really obvious that we weren't doing anything on the prediction market product. So when you Um, say that real quick, just when you say that it wasn't working, right? A lot of the way in my mind, how these businesses work is if you raise venture capital and it's a marketplace like that, you're going out and you're going to acquire customers. So you're spending money to go do that in a lot of instances. Was it just that you were literally paying to acquire customers and they weren't using the product? Yeah, well, the problem with HubDub is worse than that is it didn't have a business model. The business model was kind of vague, and we sort of thought maybe it could be advertising. And in 2008, that a lot of people still sort of believed advertising could be a, an endpoint or, you know, we could be an acquisition or something. There was no lifetime value on a user, so we couldn't really spend money. We really had to get users through SEO. But even then, with advertising, it just wasn't going to scale. And then SEO just kind of was growing linearly. And so it was quite an easy spreadsheet exercise to work out that we would never get to anything interesting within any kind of reasonable time frame. 
Yeah. So you make that transition, right? It sounds mm-hmm. like it happened over the course of maybe a year or so, but relatively. Yeah, it was new. really a course of, I'd say, like six months and then another six months before we actually shut it down. But it was a sort of six month process of pivoting. Gotcha. And what did you learn from that? Like, is that something you think about today and you rely on and say, hey, just be more decisive? Right. Is that the answer? Um, yeah, like they definitely and you get a luxury second time entrepreneur. You go to your board and go, hey, this is not working. We're going to do something different. They're like, OK, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like whereas first time around, they're like, really? Like we were sold on that originally. You know, it's, it's just it's a lot harder. Right. So I think the things that convince me about pivoting is one is if you do have to be committed and excited about a, an avenue and go after it. But you also need to have sort of your eyes open that if something is really not working, and that you had a hypothesis that you could do something, you could acquire users for a certain value, and that's not happening, then you have to like, okay, is there other places we can acquire users to get to scale? And if you kind of continue to do that for a while, it really isn't that promising, then it's like, okay, this is not working. So it's definitely a lot easier to go to my board and sort of say this is not working. I think the other thing is to understand that when you do see traction, you kind of, I think because I've seen it when I have seen it, I know what I'm looking for. And so I can now see when we've worked on something for a period of time and we're not getting it, we don't delude ourselves by saying, hey, but if we just launch this next feature, if we just launch this next feature, this core thing would work. And I now know that that's almost never happens. So you said, so, you said mm-hmm. that you know what traction looks like, right? What yeah. does it look like? Is it just finding uh, like product market fit? How do you define that? Yeah, there's different sort of heuristics for like, working out whether your product market fit, there's a couple of things you can do, which is you look at your retention numbers, just pure, like say day 30 retention, what percentage of users are sticking around by day 30. And then you can kind of benchmark that against like similar products. That's one. If you see that your community around your product is growing, that's another one. Look at your revenue retention. So with FanDuel, one of the really exciting things was that while our users would decline as expected, it actually was quite impressive there. Their month 13 retention was actually 50%. So a year later, 50% of the users were still using it. That's just incredible. But the other thing that was really interesting was that the amount that they played went up in their second year. So they were actually spending more in their second year in the core, even though half of the users had abandoned by that point. So that's a really, like, if you can see that, that's very, very, very promising. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And this business, sports betting is very, very, very unique, obviously, from both a customer acquisition, a lifetime value, all of those kind of metrics, right? But what did you learn, right? Because when you think about it, you raised over $400 million for FanDuel. Yeah, 450 million. 450 million. So a lot of money. And then I know you've been involved in businesses, whether on the board or founding them yourselves that Mm -hmm. are bootstrapped, right? So you've taken and seen multiple approaches. How do you think about raising money versus bootstrapping today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting, and you sometimes see these huge arguments on Twitter about it, and it's, it's kind of the most ridiculous argument out there. Because here's the thing, you don't really get to decide, well, let's back up a bit from that. If you pick the market, then the market's going to pick your fundraising strategy if you want to win, right? And I'll just give you an example. I used to sit on the board of a company called Uni, they make pizza ovens, yep. incredible business, Right but a very good business for cash generation. They make a pizza oven at a certain price in China. They get it shipped to the US and Europe and they sell it at a real premium for that. And the cash goes back into the business. And when they started, it wasn't that a competitive industry. So it wasn't, and it doesn't have like winner takes all effects. And so therefore they could grow it by not raising outside capital. In fact, they did Kickstarter early on where the customers fund the growth. So today the founders own the vast majority of that business because they didn't raise outside capital. Outside capital probably wouldn't even necessarily have helped because that period of growth has allowed them to build like a really strong community and a really strong skill set. In those early years, they didn't grow that fast, but that wasn't a problem because they built this like huge base and depth of knowledge in order to leverage. Now the company is going incredibly fast. They can do that in that sector. You want to do that in sports betting, you have no chance. If somebody said to me today, hey, I want to compete in sports betting and I've got a billion dollars, I'd be like, hmm, I don't think you're going to make it, right? Like you need to be thinking bigger. Because that's the nature of that market today. The nature of daily fantasy sports was kind of similar in that we had competitors like DraftKings. We had other competitors as well. DraftKings over the period that we raised 450 million, I think it raised 
700 or 800 million, so almost 2x what we had raised. So we didn't have the luxury to go, hey, you know, we actually want to bootstrap this business. It basically was driven by the market dynamics. Yeah, gotcha. That makes sense. And when it comes to customer acquisition, I don't know, I'm assuming during your time at FanDuel, you spent hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing yeah. across the Most of that money was raised in customer acquisition. Was used for customer acquisition, right? And, mm-hmm. and DraftKings, everyone looks at today and they're going to spend over a billion dollars this year yeah. on marketing. And it's the same question, mm-hmm. right? Like, how does this work? So what did you learn most about acquiring customers and not only acquiring customers, but measuring how effective these channels were? I would say Fangio had two components that made it really successful. And number one, I'd say actually maybe there's 33. Number one was a product that users loved. If you just don't love your product, it doesn't matter how good your marketing is, they're going to churn out. But that was really clear from early on. We could see that in our cohorts, that users loved the product. They were sticking around. They were spending more. The second part was then marketing discipline, which was it's no point having a great product if users aren't using it. And what we know in this market is that these products don't grow virally. Most paid products do not grow virally. It's very hard to make a paid product viral growth. And so you have to spend money to acquire those users. And so we're like, okay, we have to spend money. Early on in our existence, we didn't have much. Like our first marketing budget, I think was like $50,000. And if we were going to get any more money, we had to show that we were really efficient at spending that money. And so we basically built a marketing team that was laser focused on cost per acquisition. So every user, and in the early years of Fangio, we were acquiring users for $50. That was our, everything blended, everything in the end of the year cost us $50 to acquire a paid user. What we learned in that was that this was just a discipline that basically we needed people that were really laser focused on the metrics and acquiring users cost effectively and everything was measured and everything went back to that CPA and that you know, if someone tried to sell us on, but hey, this helps your brand, we were like, that's a failed performance marketing campaign because everything we do comes back to your performance number. And really for the early years of Angel existence, all the way up to 2014, every dollar we spent went back to that CPA model and was optimized against that. And even since then, Fangio has increased his brand spend. It's still very disciplined on a CPA model. So I had Jason Robbins on the podcast and Mm -hmm. some of the questions were revolved around the idea of spending a lot of money, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. that these companies, not only DraftKings and FanDuel, but everyone in the space, get questioned about how much money is being spent. Is this a sustainable business model and so on? And the way he broke it down was very similar, which was just the idea that if the cost per customer acquisition fits into the lifetime value of what you think that player will actually make and they can turn a profit within two to three years of a live state, then they do it. And if it doesn't, then they don't do it. It was a very structured and I think like calculated way. And it sounds like you guys thought about it in the same manner. Yeah, absolutely. DraftKings also, you know, incredible performance marketing engine. The only nuance there is, and you know, this is something that investors have to believe in, which is LTV is projected, right? Like it's not a real number. CPA is a real number. And so when you say LTV, what is that LTV? It just gives well, no you an one, example. no one knows in sports betting. Either. No one, no one knows, right? We've not had sports betting for like ten years. DraftKings, in one of its investor presentations, gave a ten-year retention number, which to a lot of investors looks crazy. Actually, if you look at the UK, if DraftKings is a winning platform, is a reasonable estimate. But there's other businesses. So let's look at Peloton. We look at that a year ago. You know, the LTVs that I'm sure they were projecting then are very different from the LTVs they're projecting today. So that's kind of the challenge. The CPA is a hard number that you can get that down to a decimal point, but the LTV depends very much on what happens in the future and depends to some extent that if you're not a winning platform, and this happened in the UK sports betting market, which is a winning platform might retain a user for 10 years, but if you're like an also run, so you're still an operator, you're just not number one or number two, your LTV, you might only obtain users for three to four years as they churn out to those other platforms. And so it becomes sort of risky to be projecting a 10-year value if you're not actually going to become number one or two in that market. Yeah, well, it's both easier and more difficult because no one really knows. So you can kind of throw something up in the air and it's believable to some degree. But that brings up a good point when it comes to consolidation. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are interested to see what happens on the M&A front in sports betting mm-hmm. here in the United States. What do you see happening? You know, the interesting thing about the U.S. is it's already very consolidated. So again, if you use the U.K. as an example, before there was consolidation started about five years ago, no single player had actually more than 
10 to 15% market share. So it was very fragmented. So we were looking at Betfair, Bet365, Skybet, Par, long, long list and a long tail of operators. And so this was a very fragmented market. It then did consolidate in that Paddy Parr merged with Betfair, that combined company known as Flutter, then acquired Skybet. They're now the number one player. NTN scooped up a bunch of brands like Ladbrokes and Carl, Sportingbet, probably sort of the number two. So there was a consolidation. It took sort of 15 years after the industry really kind of started. The US today, FanDuel has about 40% market share. DraftKings, I think sort of 25 to 30% market share. So already you kind of seeing 65 to 70% as in the top two operators. It's already quite consolidated. And then number three, or arguably number two is MGM when you include casino. You know, they've got sort of 15 to 20% market share. And so none of those three are going to merge. Like, I don't think they can from a regular perspective. None of them will want to. And so what I do think we'll see is outside of those top three, I think we can see some acquisitions of the smaller players. I think we also may just see some exits. And I'll give you an example of that is when first part of last year was all gung-ho to sort of like we were, they were going to spend a billion dollars on online sports betting. And today they've now kind of really stepped back from that. And in effect, to me, that's in their exiting the market. So I think what we're going to see is that the market goes in two ways. We're going to have the big winning players, which are Fangio, DraftKings, AMGM, maybe one other. And then the other players, I think, are going to see that this is an incredibly expensive game. And if you're not going to be in the top three or four, then you really shouldn't be in the market. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And this is a much what I'll call less sexier topic, but the idea of like regulation and how these leagues and these teams feel about sports betting in general. Mm -hmm. So we've obviously seen a mad dash of not only leagues, but individual teams and other entities Mm -hmm. looking to capitalize and monetize these relationships. So there's people are being named official betting partners of leagues, of teams. There's endorsement deals, all of these things going on here in the United States. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, the market is much more mature in Europe. But what we've also seen now is some of these teams are pulling away, right? So there's in the Premier League and some of these leagues, some of the partnerships are ending or people are being told that they can't yeah. do these things. Is that a concern, do you think, here in the United States? Like, are we doing too much too quickly or is it like a long way down the road? It's quite incredible to see both markets go in the opposite direction. So just to give an understanding of what's happening in the UK and, and some of the European markets is Over the last 20 years, we've seen a huge increase in sports betting and sports betting advertising. And in the UK in particular, there's been a really big backlash against that. Like the majority of sports fans do not bet. And for a long time, there was an acceptance that like a lot of people don't drink, so they don't have a problem with beer ads. But certainly in the UK, there felt like there was an overexposure of sports betting advertising. There also was a feeling that the industry wasn't taking problem gambling seriously enough. And problem gambling is a real problem. It affects a small percentage of people, but the people it does affect, it can be devastating. And so there was a perception in the UK that the industry wasn't doing enough about it. And actually perception that a lot of their profits was coming from problem gambling. That basically has resulted in both at a regulatory side and even at a kind of league level, them damping down on sports betting. And there being kind of changes at regulatory level put on sports betting in the UK, which is causing the industry to actually contract, which is quite incredible. The opposite is the case here in the US. So the US is basically taking away controls, legalizing and then regulating these industries. And we're seeing an explosion of sports betting. Are we going to see something that's happened in the UK? I think that's an open question. I think my view is that the US is quite culturally different. The US has accepted that lotteries and inner city casinos have taken a lot of money from the lowest socioeconomic demographic. It's kind of a tax on the poor and being okay with it. Are they going to treat sports betting differently? I don't know, but... My experience from like, you know, casino betting and and lotteries is the U.S. seems a little bit more permissive than the U.K. The U.K. is kind of more sort of nanny state, shall we say, about it than we often see in the U.S. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think a lot of it, too, just depends on how customers react, right? If there is a big uproar of people saying, hey, this is too much, people are having problems, this is causing a real uproar in society, then maybe there's pullbacks. But ultimately, right now, I think people are grabbing as much cash as they can. So, Oh, absolutely. And like the leagues, you know, why the leagues do it? And I always say the leagues love money. (laughs) 
<laughs> like that, that is their job, right? The, the league's job is to make money for their owners and the team's job is to make money for their owners. And, you know, whenever they get into sports betting, this is a tried model with DFS. Initially, they were like, we're not so sure, but, you know, we'd love to experiment. We certainly would love the money. And then they'll dip their foot in it and nothing bad happens. And they just go all in. And then sports betting came along and we see this model playing again. And we're seeing this model playing again with crypto, which is, I think, you know, we're talking about sports betting advertising today, but where do we see the avalanche of crypto advertising you know, and then we'll be having the same questions, but well, I, the league I, is going through the same process with all of these new categories that they did with DFS and sports betting. It's not going to happen with crypto as well. I was just going to say, I think that is already happening to some degree in crypto, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if we've reached the full scale or the full level of sports betting. Just, oh, we from, haven't. <laughs> just, just from the idea of, yeah, where we are in the industries, but If you look at crypto.com, FTX, and a couple others, they've committed over a billion dollars in advertising money this year. Granted, that's going to be paid over 20, 30 years to some extent, but it's a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. the way I look at this, and I'm curious your opinion, is like the leagues have a certain number of foundational revenue sources, right? TV money, tickets, merchandise, and so on. These are all new and they're additive. And for these leagues to grow, the NFL, Roger Goodell has previously said that he wants to reach $25 billion in revenue within the next Mm -hmm. few years, right? To get to those numbers, you have to find new sources. It's impossible to get there by just growing the current ones. So you can do the Mm -hmm. big TV deals, you can get more merchandise sales, you can raise prices Uh on tickets, all that stuff. But ultimately, Part of the reason why I believe they're doing this is it's a completely new revenue source, right? There was no official crypto partner of the NFL or the NBA five years ago. It didn't exist. And I think what they've done is they have watched these companies in crypto over the last five years to your point and said, hey, nothing's gone wrong, right? Like there was maybe some volatility and stuff like that. And there's some things that need to be worked on the regulatory front, but all in all, we trust it. And so now we're Mm going to go monetize this and make a bunch of money. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. And we will see this play out in crypto. And I think what we're seeing today in crypto is a tiny toehold of what we're going to see down the line. Yeah, I think so too. Okay. So let's talk about crypto a little bit. You have obviously spent most of the last maybe 15 to 20 years on the consumer product side with FanDuel and figuring out that business and building that. You've transitioned the last few years and there's been a theme in some new businesses that you've started, which have revolved around crypto and adjacent businesses, whether it's NFTs or the metaverse or Web3 Mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Where are you in kind of your intellectual journey? Like how long ago did you start looking at some of this Mm -hmm. stuff? And like, where are you today? Yeah, so I probably started looking at into 2017. My interest has always been in consumer products. In 2017, like they were largely finance products and frauds, shall we say. And so I got into crypto then. I played around with Ethereum, some of the other altcoins, and I just sort of came away going, this is nowhere near ready for consumers. And it sort of needs this financial infrastructure. And I just sort of knew that wasn't what got me excited. And so I dabbled then, I sort of played around with a bit. And then into 2019 was when I started to get back into it and started to say, hey, there's some interesting things here. And I got actually got into NFTs in 2019, actually initially with, with Topshot of all products and Nifty Gateway. And I was like, you know, these are much better. This is much closer to being consumer ready. And that really was a starting point of getting sort of back into it. Even then, what I saw sort of then, and, and obviously it blew up earlier this year, was the transaction cost and the complexity of setting up a wallet is something that is a major barrier for that next billion consumers. And so I was like, okay, we're close. We are really close. This is kind of the last mile of getting to something that's consumer ready. And that's when I was like, I want to get all in here because I think we're really close in building something here. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny you mentioned NBA Top Shop because I'm not like an avid user of the platform to a high degree at all. But mm-hmm. ultimately, I, I don't think that Roham and the team over there get enough credit for... Mm-hmm bringing people mainstream into it, right? Connecting that culture to crypto and NFTs and stuff like that, because they onboarded a bunch of people that probably had no idea what any of this stuff was previously, and they made it accessible. Absolutely right. That product's had a lot of challenges, but their onboarding ramp was really smooth. And another product like that was Nifty Gateway, which had a really nice onboarding ramp. You can use credit card to get in, to buy. And so I think those are really nice examples of onboarding ramps. Other projects have since then kind of obviously shot ahead. But no, I I would give a lot of credit to Top Shot. What they built there was very, very smooth and slick as well. Yeah. So that brings up the good point, though, which is how do we get the next billion people? And Mm -hmm. I think my general take on some of this stuff is like, 
the same as yours, which is it's really difficult and is really confusing in a lot of ways yeah. when you initially go to do these things. When you go set up a wallet, when you buy ETH, you buy ETH, you get hit with a gas fee that's 100% of what you're buying and you're like, yeah. oh shit, what am I doing, right? Like, yeah. this can't be right. You buy yeah. an NFT, you don't know where, you're like there's just a bunch of confusion, I think, around yeah. the average consumer doing this stuff. So in your mind, like what gets us there? How do we bring this and get more people, not only educated, but using these products? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'd say there's sort of three or four key elements, and it's all about speed, transaction cost, complexity, and, and sort of fiat on-ramp. Those, those are sort of the four things I always look at. The real challenge with Ethereum is there's challenges with all four of those. So it is slow by any measure of any consumer application. It is very, very slow. It is incredibly expensive. Like average bet in the US today is around 15 to $20. You can't build a betting exchange on Ethereum. You also can't build like, you know, NFTs are a big market today where the average value of these NFTs is in the thousands of dollars. Normal people outside that top 1% are not trading in those sort of like expensive artworks as it were. So cost, transaction cost needs to come down. Thirdly is complexity. Like just this morning, I was looking at DeFi Kingdom, which is a, a yield farming game on the Harmony blockchain. And it's quite cute. Basically, it's a kind of a medieval setting. It's like 8-bit art. But the whole experience of bridging money over from ETH onto Harmony and unwrapping it and then swapping it into one coin and then plugging it into the game was just like 99.9% .9 of people have given up and going through the manual to try and understand it. That level of complexity is just so challenging. And then the fourth point is, for any of these really take off, we need to make it so much easier for somebody to go from credit card to in-game currency. So those are the four things that I've looked at. Earlier this year, we were like, look, we need to focus on the L1 or it's an L2 that we think can fix the most of these issues. Now, nothing's going to be perfect, but what is the one that we think can like get us the furthest? And we looked at Polygon. We looked at some of the ZK rollups, which really weren't ready then, but we're talking to some of the people like Immutable that were building on that. But what we landed on was Solana. And we have been building on Solana now for probably about eight months in the case of Vault, or six months in the case of Vault, and had an incredible experience. Incredibly fast. Can go up to 50,000 transactions per second. It is mind-bendingly cheap in that each transaction barely registers in a cost. And it has, with Phantom Wallet, a very nice, very well-executed wallet, which everyone I bring over from MetaMask to Phantom, they're, the first thing they always say is, like, can't believe how fast it is, can't believe how cheap it is. And then the third thing they always say is, I can't believe how good the Phantom Wallet is. And so those are the three things. And then we are seeing now Fiat onboarding getting a lot better. Uh, MoonPay is integrating with Phantom. We've actually been looking at in-app payments within one of the applications we're building, which actually looks like the Apple is allowing. So we're getting really close, but it's those four things that need to be solved. Yeah. So let's talk about Ethereum and Solana for a second. Mm -hmm. I know you've spent a bunch of time looking at this, so I'm curious just kind of your opinion on how this all plays out, mm -hmm. right? So for the people that don't know, Solana, to your point, can handle many more transactions per second. It is much cheaper, more efficient. They have the wallet, everything set up. So it is has taken market share over the last yeah. 12 to 18 months, obviously. But when it comes to NFTs and things like that, it's still a smaller portion, right? Ethereum is is, right. yeah, yeah. is the larger. There's so much of the, the value is still locked up in Ethereum. Yeah. Certainly the very highest value pieces are on Ethereum. You know, Solana has had a couple of million dollar plus NFTs, but they're definitely a rarity. Yeah. And when it comes to wallets, MetaMask is obviously, what is it, 20, yeah, so 20 MetaMask times bigger is about at the time? 21 million monthly actives. Solana just announced, I think there were 1.8 million accounts. Okay. So 21 uh, million to 2 million. That's correct. You've obviously chosen to build on Solana. You mm -hmm. think it is the superior tech. What happens here? How does this play out? Yeah, so I still love Ethereum. I think it's an incredible technology and I think it's an incredible community. I love that it is very much sort of community driven and it is people building on top of it. Some of the projects we've seen over the last year, like Constitution DAO, like Ohm, like there's such creativity and originality on Ethereum, which doesn't sort of copy across. I don't really feel to any other L1 today. A lot of the stuff in the other L1s are sort of derivative. There's some originality, but you know we're not there yet compared to Ethereum. But what I'll say is whenever I'm building for consumers, I kind of need to build the product I know that's going to work for them today. And so the choice, there's no question about building on Ethereum. 
Ethereum does not work for consumers, and I don't think ever will work for consumers. Where it may work is on L2s, so something like a ZK rollup or an, an optimistic rollup on Ethereum, but they're not really there today either. And so when we're building today, Solana is really, to me, a very, very clear choice. And we've seen projects over the last three or four months in the consumer space, like Magic Eden or Fractal, which uh, Justin Can just launched last month, really good indicators of, of kind of the direction of travel. And we've seen also a lot of good games or game teams coming out and building on Solana. Where does this head? I think Solana is definitely going to see an incredible 2022 with regards to consumer adoption. Some of the things, so Phantom is releasing a mobile wallet, a native mobile wallet this quarter. I think that's going to be incredible for the ecosystem. I think we're going to see an awful lot of high quality games being released on Solana. They're just going to leverage that you know, great wallet, fast and cheap. And I think we're already seeing a real increase in market share in NFTs. So Solana NFTs in August last year had about a 3% market share. In December, they had about a 20% market share. And that's by value, not by volume. On a DAU basis, I believe that Solana Art, Magic Eden are in like a similar ballpark as OpenSea, but the average value of an ETH NFT is much higher. Already seeing real momentum there. Yeah, that's obviously strong growth. It went from, you said, 3% market share. 3% to 20%. To 20%. If you had to guess this time next year, what number would that be? Oh, Just a guess. I won't hold you to it. Yeah, like what do I think? I'm assuming you think it'll be higher. Right? Oh, like, so it's hard to predict market share because I, I don't know where it heads. Like I think it retains its volume. And I think OpenSea goes multi-chain. We are going to see massive growth on Solana without a doubt. Like we're seeing all these games projects that are all kind of in development now and real money going behind real teams that have built real games in the past. And so with them launching, those NFTs are going to have utility in those games. And so you can just see a huge groundswell of new products and new NFTs being launched. So I think we're going to see massive growth on Solana. I guess I'm less close to the ecosystem. I definitely see stability and and growth there. I just don't know how big it'll be. All right. You didn't answer the question, but I'll let you go. Yeah, I I, I guess I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer in terms of market share. Yeah. It's difficult because not only do you have to be confident in Solana and its future, but you have to guess what everything else is going to do. What happens on, on Ethereum? Like, so for example, Maybe PFPs, like I own a Solana Monkey and it's, I think it's about 150, 160 sol at the moment. So it's about 30 to $40,000. But a lot of the premium PFP or most of the premium PFP projects are on Ethereum. Maybe that's fine. Like if I'm buying a $400,000 board ape, then I don't care I'm paying like $50,000, dollars on transaction. Maybe that's a good thing. It's kind of like it's a luxury tax. So those PFP projects, like maybe they largely still stay on Ethereum, and that's a big part of what is being traded in OpenSea. So it's really a question of, to market share, you'd have to sort of think, where did those projects go? I still think they have a lot of long levity, and I'm a fan of them. But I don't see gaming NFTs really making a big presence on Ethereum because of just per math. You know, with games, you want to have a lot of a lot of items. And for a mass market game, you can't have items costing hundreds or thousands of dollars. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And I'm curious where you see some of these bigger NFT projects going, right? So you have CryptoPunks, you have Bored Apes, like some of these larger ones where they can go anywhere from 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 to a couple million dollars in value. Yeah. Are these like the peak right now? Like it's difficult to see these go into 10 million within the next year, like 2Xing, 3Xing, 4Xing, right? So I think a lot of people are saying, hey, like why don't we focus on some of the smaller projects, build up a bigger base? But like, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I think I'd be buying the Lambos. Like the the reason being is it's hard to build a really strong community and Bored Apes have built an incredible community. And so I don't have 400,000 to spend on a Bored Ape, but if I had a choice between spending 20,000, I'd rather or 40,000, I'd get 10% of a board ape than getting 100% of a project that hasn't as proven a community. I think that's the thing is like board apes has got a, such a proven community that it feels like a safer investment than going after something that hasn't. That's kind of my take on the PFP project. Is community the strongest moat when it comes to NFTs and crypto in general, like from other projects? I think the markets are all, they're actually, even though they're using the same technology, I think they're quite different. So we have art NFTs, 
that's going to be down to the artist. If that artist turns out a ton of garbage the next 10 years, the value of their early work is going to go down. If they continue to become and become more and more relevant and keep scarcity, I think we will see real appreciation in that art. I think that market only continues to grow as more and more of the modern art market becomes digital. It is a tiny percentage today, like in the single digit percentages of the modern art market. I think we see a huge growth in that. PFP projects, I think, will be important and will continue to be important. I think everyone's going to aspire to be in sort of a higher value club. I think it's a little bit of a challenge in that you can only really have one PFP, as it were. Well, I guess you can have multiple, but like Twitter only really allows you to have one avatar. But it sort of feels the real value as that is your avatar and you carry that around with you. But I think the ones with strong community, that's where their value is. And with punks, I think a lot of it is just history and providence that they are kind of like a modern art project. I don't need to be on the CryptoPunk Discord server to get value from it. I own something that I'm either smart or rich or both. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's plenty of rich people who are willing to like say that, you know, like they, to buy that to demonstrate their wealth and potentially their smartness. Gotcha. So I want to talk about Web 2 versus Web 3 for a second here. And there's been a big debate online. Anyone that has a Twitter account has probably seen a lot of people going back and forth about who owns Web 3, right? Mm -hmm. And the general idea is Web 2, everyone sacrificed. They were creating content. They were doing all these things, but they didn't actually monetize it nearly as well as the platforms that they created it for did. Web 3 gives you some ownership structure Mm -hmm. through various protocols that you can monetize. Yeah. So you have actual ownership. But yeah. the counter argument is that a lot of this is being funded by venture capitalists and mm-hmm. other people and all of this stuff. Where do you sit on this debate and like, what are your general thoughts? Yeah, I kind of wrestled with this one over the holidays. Part of me thinks it's kind of amusing. I actually made the joke on Twitter that VCs should become anons because we all seem to trust anons, right? It's kind of like, oh my God, this is, you know, Andreessen Horowitz owns like X percent of this and that's terrible. But for some reason, this like anonymous MetaMask wallet holds 10% of it. But for some reason, we don't have an issue with that. So that bit is a little bit weird in that we do seem to trust anonymous accounts. There seems to be this belief that there's a purity in, say, like Ethereum, like there was no VCs involved in the funding with Ethereum, and then therefore there's a purity to it that, you know, when VCs invest, they somehow take away from the purity from it. But those anons that invest in Ethereum as start are a total mixed bag of people. Like some of them obviously were idealists, and they believe this is the future of money and that this was the world computer. And some of them thought, and actually it looks like a large percentage of them, flipped their Ethereum as soon as they doubled their money, right? So they weren't idealists. They weren't diamond handing us forever. Like there's interesting stats of that, those early Ethereum, how much of it has been resold and it's a vast majority of it. So people have this weird sense that there is purity of some projects like Ethereum. I'd say my own experience of VCs is that it is a totally mixed bag as well. Like VCs run from somebody who formerly was an anon who set up a DAO and I'm in them and we are investing in projects. And so you sort of go, well, are we VCs or are we kind of these virtuous anons that are investing in these projects? Where are we on the spectrum? Are we value added to the project? And I haven't yet had people articulate to me what their fear is, what, what the bad VCs are. And, and there certainly are bad VCs, but what I haven't seen articulated is how they damage a project where they're a sort of a small, they own like 5% or they own 10% of this project. So that's what I haven't really got the clarity on, which is what is the community fear that say Andreessen is doing? And I will say Andreessen is an incredible VC and an incredible value add, incredibly supportive. They also, and this is true of all VCs that I've worked with in crypto is they are incredibly hands-off. They recognize that, like, this is a normal situation in a venture round when you're using for a crypto startup. A VC will come to you and say, I'd love to put in 5 million. And you'll go back and say, I can let you get in 50,000, but only after I've done my referencing on you. So the balance weighs very heavily towards the founders in crypto, much more than it ever did in venture. And so really when they say who owns it, like a lot of the power still for a lot of these decentralized projects, the project haven't, de- sorry, a lot of these projects that are currently centralized that haven't decentralized, a lot of the power really resides with the founders as opposed to the money. The money's put money in, but it 
doesn't necessarily have much direction on them. Look, I think there's a lot of nuance to this debate. I think mm-hmm. like you could sit down for probably five hours in a row and, and, yeah. and discuss this and people could go back and forth and everyone's going to have their own opinion. But ultimately, like one of the things I always come back to is people often forget what the traditional structure looks like, right? If I'm an individual and I want to participate in the upside of a company in equity, like a lot of times I have to wait till the IPO and I have to buy it in the stock markets and I don't get any of that, what we'll call like pre-market or private market upside that the venture capitalist or the founding team or any of these people realized before I did. Yeah. And if you do seed invest, and I know you have a lot, you also know that you almost have no information rights and you have no liquidity. Like if the company can go in a totally different direction, they don't even have to tell you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, and I always sort of like crypto is kind of an incredible step in the right direction. There's sort of this idea that VCs own Web3. I find a head scratcher. Like honestly, if anything, the people that own Web3 today are the founders. So many of these projects have not decentralized yet. It's really that founding team that is driving it. And, and to me, that feels like that's right. Like you are putting trust in those founders. But as I mentioned before, whenever you do venture rounds, like you're deciding which investors and you're giving them very limited rights. And so if there's concern about who we're trusting, it's we're trusting founders to do the right thing, to build these protocols and make the right decisions for better or worse. Yeah. It obviously levels the playing field to some degree, just from an ability for people to invest standpoint, Mm -hmm. but ultimately like this is probably somewhat of a boomer take here, but it is really risky, right? Like seed investing is really, really risky and you had to be an accredited investor, right? So you had to have a certain net worth or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And they're removing some of these rules and making it easier, opening it up in the traditional markets. But ultimately they had those rules because it's really risky. When when you're seed investing in companies, a lot of people, you obviously try to limit the downside where you can and try to find asymmetric returns. But mm-hmm. ultimately, a lot of these companies are going to zero and you're going to lose That's money. Right. And then the money that you do make is locked up for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years until you can access liquidity. So That's right. it doesn't work for a lot of retail investors. It doesn't work for mm-hmm. a lot of traditional investors. So I think there's kind of like a double-edged sword to this of like, we want people to have access, but like some people need to understand that the lack of liquidity and some of these other things in traditional markets isn't the best option. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like another thing that I've seen on Twitter, which is uh, they talk about certain projects or, or even L1s that is like, oh, the VCs are using to dump this. So they want to dump on retail. And as a seed investor, and I've bought into some of these protocols in the private round, we're actually subject to lockups that retail is not. And in actual fact, not only are we subject to hard lockups, so we can't sell for a couple of years. There's softer lockups. One of the things that I, as a founder, will do is if I'm raising capital for a startup, I'll go, well, I'll go and talk to other founders and say, are they good investors? Are they going to stick you with the long term? Are they going to flip it as soon as the lockup ends? And the investors that flip it immediately are not the ones that I want on my cap table. And so it's kind of almost the opposite. It's, I'm seeing protocols that are doing private seed rounds. They go to IDO at a huge valuation, but none of the seed investors are selling because they're basically locked up. And so you have this really weird market and I've seen 100x upticks, but there's actually the people in the seed rounds are actually not selling into that because they can't. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of times the function is that they literally can't. There's just a lot of preventing yeah, they them. So, they don't, you know, they're locked up. Yeah. And on a lot of these things too, like the free market usually decides, right? People will gain reputations. They'll figure out kind of who's in it for the right reasons and who isn't. And yeah. maybe that takes a few years or whatnot. Yeah. But ultimately, I think that's probably a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So let's chat about DAOs real quick. So mm-hmm. you obviously have led organizations that are extremely centralized, right? As the CEO yeah. of FanDuel and other organizations. And now we have DAOs, which are decentralized yeah. autonomous organizations. Basically, it just decentralizes centralizes the structure from a governance perspective of Mm -hmm. these organizations or corporations. What are your general thoughts, right? Because for me, centralization has a lot of benefits. It's the reason why Mm -hmm. a lot of organizations tend to go that way. Even today, it has worked obviously for multiple, multiple, multiple multi-trillion dollar companies. It is generally thought of as like the most kind of efficient way to build a company. But now we have this new structure that comes out and it provides a lot of benefits also, but I would argue that it probably has a lot of downsides as well, similar to anything Mm -hmm. else. What are your general thoughts on DAOs as someone who has seen it from kind of both sides of the table? Yeah, and I think the next five years is going to be explosive for DAOs. I am incredibly optimistic for DAOs in their ability to attract capital and talent, which is kind of two of the most important things for a company to do. 
The one thing that DAOs are typically really weak on, though, is in terms of execution. And that's where centralized firms are actually really good. My last two companies that I started, or last, all the companies I started, I've done them in a centralized fashion. One of the bet decks is on a path to decentralize. So that's our plan from day one was we're going to set up as a centralized company with the CEO, with the CTO, and then we're going to have like your hierarchy. But we know at some point we want to decentralize that protocol I think it's very hard, and we deliberately decided not to do this, it would be very hard to be decentralized in day one. I mean, I think that would have looked like saying, hey, guys, we're building this thing. If you want to work with us, like here's our GitHub repository, here's what our team are working on, and we're going to issue a token. I think it's very, very hard to sort of build in that fashion. And I think what we're going to see with DAOs is we're going to see exactly the same things we see in startups. We're going to have strong leaders, whether they're called a CEO or something else, it's kind of like clear that they're in charge. We're going to see sub-DAOs forming, and those sub-DAOs are going to look like departments, and those are going to be involved in certain pieces of work. So like they're going to do marketing, they're going to do engineering, they're going to do product. Again, it's going to look like a centralized organization. I think over time, what we're going to be able to do, though, is more decentralize that. And so, for example, with Betdex, what is going to happen is we have a central core team building this protocol. We are going to open source that and decentralize it. And so that what will happen in time is other people can contribute to that code base and then that can get pushed. And in time, that whole process gets decentralized and you still probably will have a core team, but they maybe were not necessarily people that work together at the start. Some of them may have never met each other. They may not even really know who that person apart from their pseudonymous name is. So that happens over time. But I think with DAOs, we're going to see them happen, mostly start as a centralized fashion and then decentralize over time. Gotcha. So a couple of things that we've already talked about, and I want to talk about a couple more, are based off of this Twitter thread that you did about a week ago, maybe less than mm-hmm. a week ago, which just gave some predictions on Web3. So yeah. I'm going to read a couple more of them and maybe mm-hmm. just tell me your thoughts and how you got to these. One of the ones I was fascinated with is the idea of creator coins versus NFTs. So yes. for those who aren't familiar, creator coins are essentially a tokenized structure where people can participate in the future upside or whether you want to call it revenue share, whatever it is of a creator, an athlete or a personality or someone of that nature. NFTs are obviously NFTs where people are going out and they're selling this digital artwork or whatever it ends mm-hmm. up being collectible where people can join a community and participate in that way. You said that in your predictions, creator coins will still not become a thing and NFTs will prevail kind of from that yeah. structure. Why do you think that is? I think it's already happened. This has come from somebody who has loved creator coins for years, like since at least 2017. I've also, even before that, looked at income sharing agreements, all of these different models by which you could securitize, is not right, but that's what you used to say, securitize your income streams or share the upside with your fans. And I think a lot of people are being excited about that and fascinated by it. I think what we discovered in last year was that both consumers and creators actually prefer NFTs. And I'll come from from both angles. From a creator perspective, and we saw this firsthand, we did a lot of work on BitCloud, which became Deso. And creators went on there and every profile on BitCloud has a creator coin. So you basically sell your creator coin, creator coin goes up, everybody feels good. Then you run into the problem. It's like, well, what is the benefit of owning a creator coin? And so we saw a lot of creators are like, well, I'm going to do like weekly Zoom calls or I'm going to do this. And after about a month or two, it really became a drag. And then people started to realize was that I've just sold lifetime membership of my club, of me, for what feels like a very small amount of money. And that was kind of like the sticking point for creators and At the same time, what we saw was NFTs explode. And what are NFTs? NFTs are really a unit of a creator's time, particularly something like a one of one. A creator spent two hours, three hours, five hours a year creating this piece of work and then sell it. They have some similar characteristics to creator coins in that when somebody buys one of these NFTs, they're actually invested in that artist or that creator. And they want to see that creator do well partly because they kind of love that piece of art, but also because they know if that creator does well, their NFT will appreciate in value. 
but the creator is not obliged to continue to give more and more value out to the coin holder, to that NFT holder. There's no expectation that forever as an NFT holder, I get more and more value from this creator. And so what certainly I saw last year was creator coins get a bit of a bump with BitCloud and Rally as well, but then really not go anywhere. Whereas NFTs have absolutely taken off. And what I'm seeing talking to sort of more mainstream creators is they are very excited about launching NFTs into this year but really not the same with creator coins. Gotcha. I think that makes sense. Strictly from an incentives perspective, they're aligned much more with an NFT, I would assume, than a creator coin, because not only is the collector hoping that that increases in value and is promoting the work of the artist or the creator, but the creator doesn't feel like they're getting screwed out of perpetual value down the road. Perpetual value. Yeah. Now, there may be something, and Blau is doing something interesting with Royal where it really is securitization. Now, they would argue it's not a security. And we're going to we're going to get to that. Not, we're going to get to I'm that in gonna, a second here. But, you know, that part is interesting with the idea of fractionalization of like swapping. And we see this music all the time where you sell a back catalog. I think that part is interesting, but it is very hard to create a creator coin that is interesting. That's not a security. And I think that's one of the real challenges for it. Yeah. So speaking of securities, one of the things is regulation. You touched on mm-hmm. it a little bit and you said that you believe politicians in, in DC in general is going to become more open or work yeah. work more with the crypto community and Web3 community. I think there's some confusion, right? I think some people are uncertain if NFT, maybe NFTs, but more so DAOs, right? Like if that mm-hmm. is going to be regulated in some structure where it makes material changes to the protocol. What are yeah. your thoughts on kind of regulation? Is, does this worry you? Are you being kept up at night around these things? Or like, how do you see this playing out? I'm not. I'm long-term positive on regulation. And the reason that I am is that I think Web3 creates huge economic value, which is going to become apparent to everyone. I also think that it is incredibly popular and popular to a politician means votes. And I also think it is incredibly well-financed. The other thing that politicians love, which is money. And so when you have something that creates huge economic value, is incredibly popular and has a lot of money, it generally wins out in politics. It nearly always wins out in politics. And I think at the moment, what we saw last year was that crypto, to some extent, was, and it's been good, the crypto community has been very insular and very kind of protective about itself, but hasn't done a great job of kind of educating in DC. That changed last year. So that's why I'm sort of more positive. I also think that people in crypto, they wanted the opportunity to create this economic value, build these new exciting protocols and, and money Lego. They're not in it there to like evade taxes and facilitate money laundering and do all these things that I think a lot of people outside of crypto worry about. And in fact, nearly everyone in crypto is like sort of going, well, I want to have a way to figure out what my taxes are. I want to make sure that this is not being used in a way that is breaking the law or is being used for money laundering. So I think everyone within crypto or nearly everyone in crypto wants that, but there's going to have to be like an education process in DC to sort of get to that point. And that's going to take time. Gotcha. All right. I got two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. One, whatever you're comfortable sharing, obviously, but I would love to hear about how you're allocating your personal capital. Mm -hmm. Is it mostly in the digital space? Is it traditional investments? Is it venture investments? Like, just tell me how you think about your personal portfolio. Yeah. So my biggest investment is really my time. And that's kind of split between these three startups. But in terms of like capital investment, I'm actually just buying a house this month. So that, that's a pretty lumpy one. And that's because I need a house. So I've been renting recently. So renting is shorting the market, which I don't think is a good idea. We weren't sure whether we were staying in the same area and we decided last year we were. And so we went and bought a house. And also you can borrow at an incredibly low interest rate. So it'd be crazy not to buy property. Then after that, I do a small amount of angel and seed investing. It's all in crypto, basically, because that's the area that I understand the most. And there I just see the most returns. A lot of it is sort of into GameFi, because I think that's kind of one of the areas I'm most interested in. And it's nearly all consumer. It's all consumer, actually. Because again, that's where I kind of sort of the most knowledge and what I feel is the kind of best guess of what's going to work. Being consumer... I do diversify quite a lot because too many times I've worked on products that I've thought the consumers would love and seen them fall flat in their faces. And so you know that you need to kind of like diversify it. And then in terms of crypto itself, I do hold 
quite a lot of Solana. I also hold quite a lot of Samo Dogcoin, which I actually love. I think it's a great product. I'm actually quite bullish on Dogcoins, which I don't think a lot of people say out loud. But the thing that I love about Dogcoins is they're incredibly popular. When you build consumer products and you realize that if something is really popular, then that is an interesting theme to like invest in. And Dogcoins are incredibly popular. What I love about Samo is that it's, Get all the hallmarks of Shiba Inu, only it's incredibly cheap and fast because and, it's built on Solana. And so that's something that I own quite a lot of. Gotcha. And this is obviously transformed over the last, what I'll call four or five years, but you yourself as someone who's running multiple companies now has investments on the side, is making these seed investments, all these mm. things. How has your thought process on that changed? Like a lot of founders back then weren't maybe five, 10, 15 years ago, didn't have funds on the side. They weren't yeah. actively angel investing and doing these things. How has your thought process on that changed if it has changed? Yeah. The bigger thing that's changed for me is that like as a second time round founder or maybe third or fourth, I have perspective of what's adding value and what isn't. First time around, you worked crazy hours. You did absolutely everything you could to be successful. And you were, certainly in my experience, you're always sort of three to six months away from like total failure. And so you didn't really have much sort of spare time to like do other things. Second time around, I've got a much better perspective of maybe looking back, I've sort of like, well, 80% of what I did then was a complete waste of time. And so I don't do those things anymore. So I actually freeze up my schedule a lot. I also, the second time round, much better capitalized than I was first time round. And so a lot of the things that I was doing there was, you know, because I couldn't afford, uh, like somebody in finance, I would be doing all of the finance. This time I can afford that, right? And it actually isn't a good use of my time to be doing like basic bookkeeping. And so that's been a huge benefit as well. So I think for me, it's just, I have a lot more free time because I'm not doing stuff that doesn't make any value. And I'm not doing stuff that I did then because I couldn't afford somebody else to do it. And I'd say the third thing is, I have a really rich network now of people that I've worked with who... I want to work with again. And so recruiting has been dramatically easier. Finding a team to work with has been dramatically easier. And so that's made my life a lot easier as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's a trend that I envision will only accelerate, right? The number of angel investors has 10x from a few years ago. The number of companies raising money has obviously gotten bigger. There's more venture capital funding than ever before. So it is certainly there from a demand perspective. Just again, on the writer in that, like if I was starting out again today, first time, you would wait. I don't think I don't think I would do I, I probably would diversify a bit. Like I would get involved, like I would maybe be advisor to other startups to have and some diversify my risk because chances are my first startup is not going to be successful. And so going five, eight years and doing something that totally fails. And a lot of time it's not because you didn't do a hundred hours a week on it. Most of the time it failed for stuff that you couldn't really, you know. So I think it is worthwhile diversifying a bit, but I certainly wouldn't try and do what I'm doing at the moment, which is kind of running three companies and, yeah. you know. It's, it's difficult too, because this question is always posed as like, should first-time entrepreneurs do this? And the reality is a lot of first-time entrepreneurs don't have not only the social capital, but the actual capital to go and do these That's things. Right. Because yeah. it's tough to run a rolling fund with 100 LPs while you're building a business if you That's haven't right. actually built the business yet, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think it makes much more sense for second, third-time founders or people that have established built companies with a good reputation. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. All right. The last one is what have you learned, right? You've built businesses over the last 20 years. And this is a loaded question because I'm sure we mm. could have talked the whole hour about this, but you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. You've built companies that are worth billions of dollars now, right? So what are your general thoughts on just like, if you could take away one thing that you wish you would have known 20 years ago, what is it? Like, what have you learned the most? I think maybe there's probably like two or three really big things. I'd say one is within consumer. Consumers are really hard. Consumers are almost impossible or very, very difficult to predict what they're going to like and what's going to take off. And so it's interesting. I have like consumer startup founders pitching me businesses and they're like obviously hugely pumped. It's interesting quite quickly. I can recognize what they're looking for is not advice. They're looking for validation. And when I sense that, I'm like, this looks cool. I think it's awesome, but I have no idea if it's going to work. Then you're just going to have to build it and find out and try and do that as cheaply as possible. Because I have, over the years, had lots of different ideas and tried and they have failed miserably despite my enthusiasm. And so I think that's one is that like a lot of things fail, even though like they look fantastic and everybody says it's great. 
I'd say the second thing is that I find to be massively important is just investing in people you work with and in your network and the people you love working with. Like that is just paid back to me in a hundred X that, you know, the people I work with now are people, some of them I've worked with 10, 20 years and they're like one of my first jobs. And then I got to know people and I'm sort of 10, 15 years later working with them. And that's been one of my biggest sources of leverage that, if I want to start something, I'm like, hey, I know an incredible like senior engineer who's itching to get into Web3. Great. Give him a call. Great. He's super excited. That's something that culminated from just a relationship. And, you know, some of these people I've only worked with lightly, but we've had a good relationship. So I think that's the second one that's been really important. And then the third one I always kind of counsel founders to think about early is culture, with culture your company, and just thinking positively about what culture you want. Because culture is one of these things that you don't know about it until it's gone wrong. And when it's gone wrong, it's almost impossible to fix. And so just sort of setting that culture, being really clear about it as you scale as a business is something that is probably one of the hardest things after figuring out product market fit and scaling. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you obviously have the experience to back it up. So that's awesome. Nigel, thank you again for doing this. I know you could be doing a million things with your time. So I appreciate you taking an hour today and coming on. We'll have to do this again. But where can we send people online to find more about you and some of the companies you're building? So I'm pretty active on Twitter, Nigel Eccles on Twitter. And you can find me there. I, I try and be pretty active there. Nice. Okay, cool. And I know you have the companies in your bio and stuff that you're building. So if people want to check out BetDex and Vault and some of those things, they can click through there and find them. Fascinating stuff. Nigel, thanks again for doing this and we'll have to do it again. No problem. Thank you.